social contract is the agreement between government, business, wealthy, and ordinary households in how to apportion the costs and benefits of society. The recently concluded American elections come to mind as a potential first step towards a new Green Deal. In this, the 34th episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder identifies another, less obvious, freshly fashioned contract, China and its recent 14th five-year plan. But as Snyder explains, question marks are not unique to democratic republics. Communist republics have them too. The most successful contemporary social contract your podcaster is aware of are the early 2000s hearts reforms in Germany. Listeners may be surprised to learn that before them, today's quote-unquote economic engine of Europe was the quote-unquote sick man of Europe. The decade-long assimilation of East Germany had taken a heavy toll, and unemployment levels would reach more than 10% in 2004. The new social contract ensured employment in return for low-wage growth that favored business. So, success doesn't mean cost-free. But we've always known these deals are difficult. Remember the story of one of humanity's original contracts? As we learn in Exodus, Moses had to introduce the commandments twice. The stone tablets were angrily shattered in the first attempt. And by the time the second draft was presented, the scene was rather tense. Firstly, God was annoyed as all get out to see Moses again. What, he doesn't have anything else to do other than hew stone tablets? Secondly, Moses was ill-tempered that he couldn't leave the chosen people alone for a few days before they started chugging flagons like Frank the Tank. Lastly, the people, like the teenager, unable to thread the needle in a way that explained bongs and brassiers strewn across the yard to her parents, were anxiously awaiting judgment. When Moses returned for the second time, the apprehensive throng gathered before him. Moses announced, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I have got him down to ten, and a great cheer of relief issued forth. The bad news is adultery stays. Does the leader of the world's most important communist party know more about the global economy than capitalists? That may be the conclusion that Jeff Snyder head of global research for Alhambra Investments, is making or did make in his latest article. Jeff, welcome to the show. What show is this? This is Making Sense, Eurodollar University. It's episode 34. Good morning, Emil. I think uh, we're going to be talking about China. China hopefully not making a great leap, great, great leap forward because that, that didn't work out very well the first time. So more and more, it sounds like the Chinese are heading in that direction, which we'll get to in a minute. We're going to talk about, I think, the treasury market and why so many people are short and why the German, German bond market seemed to have diverged. I think we're also going to get to um, something called soft which is an interesting story, maybe a little bit arcane, but definitely worth investigating, especially given what's going on with software, or more specifically, what's not going on with software. 
you did a great introduction. That was fabulous. That's what I'm always trying to do. You told the well, audience exactly what we're going to do. Great. I, I'm, I guess I'm auditioning for us to switch roles in one of these one of these shows. So we'll, we'll, one of these times, people people are going to show up and we're going to be in different places. I'll be there and you'll be here. We'll do it on April 1st next year. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. All right. So, Jeff, in the third sentence of this article that we're discussing, which, by the way, is called China's first 15-year Shiathon, and it was posted by you on November 2nd at Alhambra Investments. The third sentence of the article starts or begins like this. It has, quote, such beasts of burden were used for the manual power they could provide in addition to the compost component they expelled out their back end while they worked. Are you referring to economists. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, I think it's a very good analogy. I wasn't specifically, but now that you mention it, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, the, what we're talking about here is the livestock, uh, the value or the, the amount of livestock the Chinese have been able to add to their system, which is absolutely, like anything else in China, over the last 40, 30, 40 years, it's grown immensely. But more than that, um, before 1980, 1990 or so, animals in China were beasts of burden. They were used for manual labor as well as what they expelled out their back end, which was used for fertilizer to grow meager crop yields. And over the last 30, 40 years, as China has taken an intentional capitalist detour and built up its economy, now all these new animals are not only there are more animals, they're actually new types of animals which the Chinese now eat instead of just harness for labor, because now they have tractors and advanced synthetic fertilizers and all sorts of other things that across the industrialized world. So in one sense, you look at their livestock and it, it mirrors and mimics China's massive transformation from a backwards agrarian society that it was under Mao Zedong into this modern industrial powerhouse. Now, Jeff, most of our audience uh, that I see on the podcast summary says that they are located in countries that we would consider democracies, liberal democracies, liberal and bastions of capitalism. And they were focused, at least, let's say the United States and much of the world was focused on the election that took place. But sadly, that means that many of our audience doesn't pay attention to China's uh, five-year plans. And even worse, they don't know anyone who pays attention to China's five-year plans. Jeff, this is where you come in because you describe their most recent, the 14th five-year plan as, quote, curiously, qualitatively ambitious. Jeff, are we to infer that previous quinquenniums were more quantitative in nature? Yeah, they were. And I think the reason most people don't really pay attention to five-year plans, because, of course, the five-year plan was something that was quote-unquote, innovated by the Soviet Union, and it didn't really get them anywhere. So mm -hmm. maybe these five-year plans aren't so uh, worthwhile to pay attention to. But, you know, communists and authoritative governments being what they are, they, they work by bureaucracy, and therefore the Chinese continue the tradition of the five-year plan. And up until this 14th five-year plan, the previous 13, or at least, you know, I think uh, numbers 9 through 13 at least, were more focused on quantity of growth. They would set targets in GDP and other sorts of economic aggregates because that's what the Chinese were focused on, changing their society, their economy from that Maoist 
you know, agrarian system which used animals for labor to this modern system that more looks like something that we would expect anywhere else in the world. That's what the Chinese have been trying to transition to, make themselves wealthy and using a quasi-capitalist means to do so. But as we've been talking about for the last several years, going back to the 19th Party Congress in October of 2017, something substantial has changed. And actually, you know, it started to change before then, but the 19th Party Congress was where it became law, where Xi Jinping's name went into the uh, Chinese constitution alongside only Mao Zedong. And Xi Jinping thought has now become the top-down economic order, which says quality growth, not quantity growth. And then, you know, alarm bells should be ringing throughout the, through anybody observing this through the rest of the world, thinking China rode the globalization growth wave to its current position. That was quantity growth. Now they're saying no longer quantity, but quality. Why? Maybe we should pay attention to this, especially, you know, October 2017 was a very crucial moment in economic history where Western economists were saying global economy is going to normalize and take off again. And here we have the Chinese saying, no, we're, we're, we're switching here. We're not counting on quantity anymore. These five-year plans, I think maybe you could say they're done because, you know, the legitimacy of the party might be in question, right? You can't vote them out. So they offer these plans and they say, and these goals, and in five years, we're going to achieve this. And then five years later, people look around, no, yeah, everything's been achieved. I suppose they deserve the mandate to continue ruling. And to that point that you say, normally they say, here's what we're going to achieve, A, B, and C. But in the, what was it, the 19th Party Congress, it was more qualitative. That's going to be fuzzy. How are we going to really define whether they've achieved quality growth? And now we're doing it again, where the, the next year plan here is more qualitative in nature. But Jeff, you also point out that there's a big difference in this one, this 14th vintage, in that the Chinese party, Communist Party, is now in, it's pursuing an indiction and not a lustrum. And most of you that are, don't manage your day-to-day -day lives with uh, measurements from ancient Rome, an indiction is a 15-year period and a lustrum is a five-year period. That's how I roll. I use ancient Roman time periods. Jeff, this 14th five-year plan is actually for the next 15 years. Well, it is. The 14th five-year plan is still a five-year plan, except somehow they snuck in the year 2035 in there as a standard to judge the 14th five-year plan, which should end in 2025. Therefore, they're kind of giving themselves an extra 10 years to complete which really sounds like an ambitious transformation. Now, to be perfectly clear, we don't know what's in the 14th five-year plan. The Chinese haven't said, they haven't, they haven't shown it to anybody. They haven't, the government hasn't, hasn't published it publicly. They've only given out rumors and hints and allegations as the communists normally do. This is standard operating procedure. And most of the details of the five-year plan probably won't be uh, known until early next year, maybe March or April, somewhere, somewhere around that, that period. But the, but, Ever since the 19th Party Congress, things have been off. You know, the fifth plenum and all these other things that were supposed to take place in 2018 got pushed out in 2019. And everything is changing. The entire Chinese economic uh, dynamic is changing. And the government is telling you, without really spelling it out for you, 
that you need to change too. And what I, what I mean by you is the Chinese people. Because you're right, Emil, you can't vote for uh, you can't vote for an alternative, number one. Number two, you can't criticize. That's That was one of the reasons why Xi Jinping's name is in the Constitution, because even criticizing the man now mean, uh, uh, renders you as a traitor. So if you can't do all those things, and the Chinese people have been used to putting up with increasingly authoritative means, and the trade-off has always been quantity of economic growth. It's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with the government standing with, you know, with his boot on my neck, if, if so long as my kids get to go off and live in those shiny new glittering cities and have a middle-class lifestyle, that was always the thing in China. We'll let the communists do what they do, which is capitalism, by the way, so long as it continues that, that conveyor belt of making China into a more advanced society. So you can understand why the government is now being pretty cautious and as well as you know, ambitious in, in, in what it wants people to believe because it's changing the trade-off. It's saying we're not doing quantity growth anymore. And so if you're one of those hundreds of millions, the thing about hundreds of millions of Chinese who are still subsistence agrarian peasantry, now they're saying, oh, by the way, we've, quantity growth is no more. We're going to go for quality growth. What does that mean to these people? What does that mean to, what does it mean to the middle class that's already been attained in some of these brand new cities? Do they mean, you know, are they going to advance any further? Are they going to be able to maintain their numbers and lifestyle? I mean, there's a lot that's up in the air here. And the Chinese, are, of course, are going to be very cautious about how they detail what they're thinking. And another reason why they might be cautious is because what they're thinking sounds, you know, almost science, you know, science fiction. And Jeff, tell me if you've heard these numbers as well. It's my understanding that China is 1.1 billion people big and that the middle class is 300 million big, leaving 800 million people still not achieving you know, that lifestyle that you would want. And if my memory serves me correct, that's very stark. You're telling 800 billion people, 800 million people, we don't have room for you right now, and we're just gonna improve the general quality, but you cannot move into these shining cities. And if you're a leader, whew, that's 800 million people that are very disappointed in you. Maybe to the point beyond disappointment, right? And I think that's, that's kind of what our analysis has been from the 19th Party Congress forward is there's two, there's two paths, two parallel paths that the government is taking. The one is to prepare the Chinese people on, on these economic matters and saying, quantity growth is gone, quality growth, here's what it means, but we're not going to tell you all at once. We're just going to, we're going to give you little morsels here and there and string you along as, far, as much as we can. And in a, in a parallel to that, obviously, the, the communist government has become more and more authoritarian as it does so for the reason I think you just specified, because these people are not idiots and they realize that they have left. And we don't really know the numbers. I think the numbers you used are probably close um, I've seen estimates that maybe it's 500 million that are still left outside. I mean, half a billion people is, <laughs> that's more than, it's almost two United States, right? Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people to say, hey, we don't, we might not have room for you, but here's what we're going to give you instead. You know, it's almost like the, the game show parting gift. You know, you can hear the, the background, the, 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 the price is right, dun, dun, da, da, and all of a sudden they're going to give you a party. I mean, 
that's that's a dangerous proposition when your government is in a majority government when it's when it's the minority government that simply oppresses a lot of its people there's a real danger here so you can understand why since the 19th party congress when when the chinese said look we expected the global economy to come back after the Great Recession in 2008-2009. It kind of looked like it did, and it kind of looked like Asia was going to survive. But then around 2012 and 13, things started to go the other way. And by 2014, 15, and 16, we realized it's not coming back. No matter what we do, no matter what the people in the West, I mean, Janet Yellen kept saying recovery. Mario Draghi was all about recovery, and it never happened. So you can understand why the 19th Party Congress happened when it did, and then what the Chinese are doing afterward, which is preparing the Chinese people for a very different paradigm. And so the, four, the 14th five-year plan, which now is a 15-year plan, essentially, is the next step in that, hey, let's keep people uh, from getting all upset about the lack of quantity growth. And Jeff, the bottom line is there's not enough money coming into the country, right? That's what the show is all about. Eurodollar University, the creation of money to support the level of economic growth that we've come to expect, whether it's in the United States, Europe, South America, Japan, or in China, different levels of expectations, but essentially they're all not being met because there's not enough money coming into China. And I have a question for you regarding the impossible Trinity. And tell me if you know, I, I've never been able to determine which of the three items they are constricted by, because the impossible trinity is that you can only control two of the three. And maybe the, the third one is changing. But here are the three. A fixed foreign exchange rate. I could see how you could say it's not a fixed foreign exchange rate, but it seems to be pegged to the dollar. And then free capital movement, that there are no capital controls. And people can say there are capital controls, but I think it's a big, porous border, and money can move in and out. And I think the third one is an independent monetary policy. And I was wondering if the People's Bank of China doesn't have an independent monetary policy. That's the one they're constricted on, because it's the euro dollar system that's dictating the policy. Jeff, tell me what you think of the impossible trinity and if China is constricted by any one of those three. Well, the impossible trinity is something that's always been some, uh, it's always been a goal that many monetary authorities and central bankers have been striving toward. But how do you achieve each of those things? And obviously, uh, in the modern theories and what modern what governs modern policies is that we don't do fixed exchange anymore because that was supposedly bad. Um, you know, floating exchange rates uh, were determined to be far superior, which then led to the massive mess in the great, great, great inflation of the 1970s. So who the hell knows, right? So, but that's, it's really, how do we get stability out of what are very different, sometimes competing means? And you're right, because the emerging market world has, an, has additional problems that we don't, we don't realize we have in the United States and Europe, which is most of these monetary systems have been dollarized, which means dollars going in. And it's not Federal Reserve monetary policy that's dollarized. It's this euro dollar system dollarizing these places. And really what we're talking about is globalization, right? That's what has happened over the last 50 years. And the reason globalization could have happened was because there was this euro dollar system to grease the wheels and make sure that all of these ambitions were satiated with monetary forms. 
There were very different monetary forms of very weird stuff like we talked about the last couple of weeks, you know, the proliferation of products, but still the end result was a monetary result and an economic result. And so as long as the euro dollar system was throwing cash out or, you know, various forms of virtual currency, virtual, virtual currency, I think we called it, as long as those were going, globalization happened. And China was a big beneficiary of that. And the way we know they're a big beneficiary of that was, number one, their economy transformed radically. But also, it's right there on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet. Those foreign reserves show up on central banks in central bank hands because central banks are trying to manage these flows, as you, as you pointed out, you know, capital controls are one way the Chinese have tried to manage the other side of it, which is ever since August 2007, there's no longer enough euro dollars or virtual virtual currency to keep globalization going. And so instead of coming together in shared prosperity, ever since then, we've been fragmenting and fracturing all over the place, which, you know, if you really look at the 14th five-year plan, that's really what the Chinese are saying. What they're planning on right now is China is going to go it alone. What they're saying is dual circulation. Yes, we, 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 our, our economy had grown beforehand on the wave of globalization. All, the, all those dollars coming in and all of that hot money investment and foreign direct investment, and all those other things building up China. But since, you know, as we said before, the Chinese have realized that's done. It's, it's, it's you know, there's, en there's enough time that's passed since the fracture and the breakage that we know that it's not coming back. And so what they're saying is we're going to invent unheard of technologies to make sure that China um, supports its domestic marketplace so that we don't need the rest of you idiots. So that's really what this 15-year plan is about, is China is now going to invent its own future without, the help, without anybody else. Screw you guys. We're going home and doing everything ourselves. Well, that's going to uh, not really goose their economic engine very much unless they use a lot more debt because they're reliant on the global customer. So perhaps that's why they need the 15 years to make this transition. Jeff, well, it's I'm not just that. I mean, think about it. You know, as we've talked about before, when we talk about communism, communism as a system is not meant to innovate and advance economies. It's meant to redistribute what capitalism has already created and has been confiscated by the communists. So Xi Jinping is now saying, we're going to attempt to do something that no communist government has ever done before. And no communist government has ever shown its ability to be able to do before. Really, that's what led to the Soviet Union's demise was the fact that it couldn't keep up. It couldn't invent. It couldn't create new technologies. And here the Chinese are saying the global economy is so bad, we don't have any other choice but to do this, this thing that is that sounds just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, they're going to just invent technologies. Nobody knows what these technologies are, but China's going to be really, really good at them. And their, their domestic economy, without any help from anybody else, is going to become the envy of the world. And it sounds, you know, <laughs> yeah, you better give yourself 15 years for something like that. Jeff, you end the piece by saying, quote, despise the man, Xi Jinping, and what he represents, but damn it, listen to him. This 15-year plan is not the first such public announcement to the people and the world that all is not well. Yeah, and that's, that's really the point here is Chinese are going, the Chinese are going further saying this world is coming apart, it's fragmenting, globalization is dead. And then the implication of that is essentially that the quantity growth globally, the global economy is broken. So whatever, whatever factors you want to assign, and we, we, we pay a lot of attention to the euro dollar around here, as one of the biggest factors, but whatever factors you want to assign, 
the pre-crisis growth paradigm, the Chinese are saying, forget it, done, gone, buried. They're going in an entirely new direction now. They're calling it high quality growth. They're calling them unheard of technologies that China's going to master and you're going to be amazed. And I think the rest of us are looking at it and say, yeah, this is, this is the stuff that comes out of the back end of a bowl. All right, Jeff, let's move on to our next article. Uh, so central bankers in Frankfurt and London have been very active lately, and ostensibly it's because of the re-lockdowns. But might there be other reasons? What can we infer, infer from this? Will central bankers in Washington and Tokyo follow suit? These are some of the ideas that you address in your next article. And you ask, you know, might the global economy respond positively to this, or is it all a big nothing burger? And so we're going to talk about an article that you posted today, the 6th of November, at Real Clear Markets, and it's called In 2020, Central Bankers Everywhere Are Being Exposed. You know, the a day before that, uh, Britain, the Bank of England, announced that they were going to introduce another 150 billion pounds in QE, uh, bringing the total for this year to 450 billion pounds. And the they said it was, quote, to help the economy. The Evening Standard said that this QE is to boost lending. And, quote, it gives banks the confidence to keep lending to businesses and households. How about the European technocrats across the channel? How are they doing? Is this happening there as well? Yeah, I mean, the, the QE is gone going everywhere at the moment because uh, central bankers don't do anything else and they don't really know what else to do. Because uh, by and large, we're in an, a real economic mess and their job is to convince you that, yes, we're in a mess, but don't worry about it. We've got everything in the future covered. Whatever bad, you know, unemployment, whatever nastiness you might see or experience right now, it's all going to go away very soon, and QE is the way it's going to—the way it's going to all go away. It's going to guarantee you that we're going to have this inflationary future. And given where we are now, inflation sounds really, really good because it's the opposite of the depressionary deflation that we're experiencing at the moment. That's right. So the inflation is a good kind of inflation that's generated by money creation, and not the kind of inflation that we all despise—the one that you know our. Our prices are going up. That's the inflation central bankers are going for, the money supply increasing uh, and then economic activity increasing as well. Well, what do the measures say, Jeff? What are we seeing in consumer prices? What are we seeing in sovereign bond yields over there in Europe? Well, it's again, it's the same same divergence, right? I mean, you have central bankers creating bank reserves as the byproduct of all their bond buying, which is supposed to raise inflation expectations because people believe the, that central bankers are printing money when they're just printing useless bank reserves. So you have, for example, the European Central Bank, which has created somewhere around $3.2 trillion uh, now in uh, bank reserves and their deposit in the current account. And there's actually others in the dispersed to the national central banks. But in the main two accounts, there's, I think, 3.2 trillion euros, which is a massive increase over the last several months since March because the European Central Bank has not only done QE, a new QE, they also had the QE ongoing from last year, and then they raised the new QE, the PUPP, whatever it is now, uh, again over the summer. So the European Central Bank is winning the race toward pretend debasement, 
-hmm. And yet what we see of inflation in Europe in, in the statistics the Eurostat just point, point, put out uh, recently is that inflation in Europe is negative. It's, uh, prices are actually falling in the aggregate. Uh, and even if when you take away oil and food prices, for example, the core rate in Europe is almost zero, which is a record low. And it's been almost zero for two straight months. So there's no inflation in Europe. And there's, there's nothing in Europe. There's nothing going on except the increase in the European Central Bank's balance sheet. So what we would expect after so many months and so much of this QE activity taking place is we would at least expect to see signs of inflation, right? Some kind of something that would point us in the direction of, hey, this stuff is actually working. But yet what we see is that no, the central bank does a lot of stuff and then it doesn't really do anything in the real economy, which is not the first time we've seen this. And Jeff, it's not just those measures that you mentioned. There are other measures that also corroborate the no inflation, no money supply um, being created by central banks. Uh, industrial commodities like oil, swap spreads, treasury inflation protected securities. But Jeff, there is a gigantic fly in the bowl of soup, this deflationary bowl of soup. It's a horse-sized fly. It's a, it looks like a little bird. And it's the U.S. Treasury nominal yield. That one is diverging from, let's say, German bonds. Maybe then, maybe there is inflation on the, on the horizon somewhere. Yeah, and that's a big one, right? <laughs> the nominal treasury yield has put yeah, absolutely. That's not one that you can just ah, eh, that's a, just a treasury market. No, and, and, and not only that, the US Treasury yields, uh, nominal yields and German bond yields or shots yields or bubbles, whatever it is on the German the US curve and the German curve almost always trade in near lockstep. On a day to day, they're moving in the same direction, they're moving in the same trends. They're I mean, you can almost line them up and almost perfectly where these markets move in tandem yet since august 27th they've diverged and noticeably diverged the german market is going the german yields are sinking back down toward record lows while u.s treasury nominal yields have been sinking has been leaking a little bit higher and higher and higher and it's sort of a noticeable divergence divergence where you're saying okay something must have changed but what 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 have what has changed right because outside of nominal treasury yields you go to inflation expectations or swap spreads Nothing has changed. You know, there's not like inflation expectations in the treasury market. The tips market are rising. They're not. They're, in fact, they're, they're flat to lower since August. So it's just nominal treasury yields that are going higher at the long end, diverging from German bonds. And it's, it's, so it's a curious sort of thing that, get, that grabs your attention. But because you love this stuff, Jeff, admit it, you love it. You remembered that there was another moment just like this, reasonably similar, in 2018, early 2018, when we saw this divergence. And back before we had the lovely Miss Lagarde at the head of the European Central Bank, we had the even lovelier Mr. Who. Who was in charge and what did he say in 2018 regarding this this moment in time when we saw the divergence, the lovely yeah, we've Mario seen, like, Draghi. Mario, we, we've seen all of this stuff before, right? The bond market, I mean, it's not our first go around with all this. And it was, I mean, just two and a half years ago, we went through the same thing. German bond yields sank throughout the middle of 2018 while U.S. Treasury nominal yields rose modestly. And then the narrative was exactly the same, right? We were good. 
the Europeans were still doing QE at that time, and they were saying that it was being successful and that inflation was going to accelerate and economic growth throughout Europe was going to accelerate. And yet, already in January of 2018, that was already being undone by Euro, what we call Euro dollar number four, which is the fourth Euro dollar episode. So you already had Germany contracting, you already had inflation falling apart, but yet here was Mario Draghi in January of 2018 saying, you know, we believe that inflation is going to go up to our target and stay there because we believe that inflation is going to go up to our target and stay there. No, oh, by the way, we don't have a single bit of evidence for our theory. That's what he said. And that was supposed to, I mean, that's, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but that's what he basically was saying is that, look, our models say that inflation is going to rise. So we believe that inflation is going to rise when the bond market, the dollar and all sorts of other indications were saying it's, it's already over, man. The party's done. And so the German market, the German bond market started to, to trade as, as it always does, which is deflationary lower yields. While in America, the treasury yields kept rising because, well, maybe it was plausible that this was just a Germany or European problem and that America would decouple from Europe and escape that. And that Jay Powell's very similar, if not the same inflation fantasy as Mario Draghi's, maybe Jay's would work out where Mario's wouldn't. And so that was the divergence through the middle of 2018 where Germany was, yeah, we can see this is not going well. Where in America, it seemed like, okay, maybe Jay's, Jay's fiction is at least somewhat plausible still. And yes, as you say, you said, you were paraphrasing Mario Draghi. And I encourage listeners to uh, read the article because you quote him. And in a space of two sentences, he says, strong, ongoing, increasing, regarding the economy, and in the very next sentence, muted, not showing convincing signs, unsustained upward trends. So it's, it's, a, it's a great quote there. And Jeff, the, I'm going to quote you here, and then we're going to transition to the idea behind all this is that central bankers are doing all this activity to create money supply, but we're not seeing any evidence of it. And I just wanted to quote you on this because this is a really good summary. So, despite years of promises, trillions of QEs, statistical calculations, forecasts, publications, speeches, uniform reporting in all the financial media, there would be no inflation on either side of the Atlantic. You're talking about 2018, but here we are in 2020. If you want to say anything, go ahead. Otherwise, we'll segue to the idea of inflation being a monetary phenomenon. Yeah, well, what we're really talking about, we're not really talking about inflation specific, but inflation as a symptom or a byproduct of what we all want, which is legitimate, sustained economic growth, which, is com which comes about because the monetary system is behaving in the way it's supposed to and allowing that legitimate, sustained economic growth to happen and maintain itself. So the lack of inflation isn't really about consumer prices. It's about, again, you know, what we see in the, in the bond market with low yields tight money, the interest rate fallacy, all of those things. And what we're, what we're talking about is essentially money that nobody pays attention to, not even central bankers because they don't really know anything about the, the global euro dollar system. And what these bond market signals are showing is that, yeah, there's, there's problems in the euro dollar system still. So we shouldn't expect inflation, which means we really shouldn't expect growth. And in terms of any divergence between the U.S. and Europe, we shouldn't expect decoupling either because Time and time again, what we see is that when something starts to go wrong, it starts to go wrong for everyone. It's just not all at once. So in 2018, it was Europe and Japan and China that got hit first, and then the U.S. came along about uh, eight, nine months later. And so 2019 was 
once again synchronized, except not no longer in globally synchronized growth, but as a globally synchronized downturn. And so we have to, if we're thinking ahead of 2020 to 2021, You've got, again, the German bond market signaling trouble ahead. You've got the U.S. Treasury market sort of signaling maybe not so much. But that, even that's a, a separate issue. That's just a bunch of Treasury shorts who are betting on Jay Powell for God knows why. But anyway, whatever the divergence is, do we expect that decoupling finally happens for the first time in 13 years? Or are we just going to repeat the same pattern over and over again, which is, Lower rates, no inflation, no economic growth, no recovery, all these same things that we've seen ever since 2008-2009. Jeff, you know who may disagree with you regarding the connection between money supply and that positive inflation that you were just describing is Stephanie Kelton, the professor most well-known and most associated with modern monetary theory. And she was recently on Eric Townsend's program with uh, on Macro Voices. It's a great show. I loved it because uh, she was forthright in all her answers. And she said specifically, she was asked, well, what about inflation if you print this money? And she said she dismissed Copernicus, which we discussed recently. She dismissed um, Friedman and Greenspan, who you quote in this article, that there's a connection between inflation and money supply. And as an example, she said, look at all this QE money we've created. There's no inflation. <laughs> I'm throwing red meat to you, Jeff. I know. I know. That's okay. a softball. <laughs> Anyways, that's what she said. You reference uh, Mr. No, Greenspan and that's, it, in here. And that's modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory is, look, the central bankers screwed up. They have no idea what they're doing. We, we can do it better. But we're going to do the same thing, which is not pay attention to the monetary system. Does that sound legitimate to you? I mean, look, history has shown conclusively that money and inflation are, are intricately linked, maybe not in the short run, but over time. And yet central bankers doing QE, which she assumes is money printing, and therefore says, well, if, if the central bank prints money and we don't get inflation, then why can't the government print money and not get inflation? And they don't stop to think that maybe you're not printing money or you don't even know what the hell money is. Maybe that's the error that central banks have made. And oh, by the way, uh, Miss Professor, have you even read what the central bankers have been saying for the last 50 years? Because they tell you, they admit to you, if you actually listen to what they're saying, we don't have a goddamn clue about what's going, in the monetary, what's going on in the monetary system. That's really the point here. And again, modern monetary theory, there's nothing modern about it. And there's no money in the theory, just like there's no money in central bank monetary policy. And that's the problem. So if modern monetary theory intends to be the uh, successor to the current system or the current way of doing things, I would advise that they start listening or looking or doing something monetary rather than just throwing a bunch of stuff up on a classroom blackboard and saying, yeah, that'll work because that's what central bankers have been doing for the last 50 years and it hasn't worked for them. It was my takeaway from that brief interview, admittedly, and I haven't read a book, admittedly, so uh, there's a lot of room for my being wrong here, but it was my understanding that that euro dollar system does not exist in Stephanie Kelton's understanding of money supply. Jeff, uh, you mentioned it very briefly. This is going to be the last part we're going to talk about. If you wanted to, the treasuries uh, are diverging because there are many speculators betting against them. Do you want to say anything about that? If not, we'll move on. 
Yeah, I think the one thing I would say is that it's it's basically just speculators. It's leverage money with the rest of the institutional part of the market is saying, look, we'll take your money because you, if you want to short treasuries based on what Jay Powell's doing, you go ahead. We've seen this movie many times before. But yet the, the size of the short position has grown absolutely historically huge. So, and, and, you know, it makes sense. If you're believing in reflation, you believe in the economy's rebounding, even if you don't even have to believe in Jay Powell's inflation, but you just believe things are getting better, where are you going to make the most money? The reflation trade has already played out in the stock market. And you look at the long end of the bond market, and you think, well, prices are there are near historic highs. Why not short that part of the marketplace? I just think that, you know, they might do better to pay attention to Japan and other instruments and look at what happens when central bankers don't know what they're doing. And if you're really betting on them to get it right, and oh, by the way, all the rest of the markets are telling you you're wrong, maybe you shouldn't double and quadruple down on these shorts because let's face it, despite the fact that they've gone historically short, these leverage money speculators, the long bonds have not moved very much at all. Very, not very, very little. So, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of a telling sign that, you know, if that's the only thing that, that you're using to bet against the market, you might want to look around at everything else. Jeff, let me just understand because the, this is the most important market there is. So the leverage money speculators is one crowd, but the other crowd, is that the crowd that we should be listening to? Are those the, who is the other crowd taking the other position? Are they more credible? Well, if you look at it over the long run, yeah, because they're the institutions who actually operate the euro dollar system and create the money, create the balance sheet capacity to let that stuff go and let that stuff go. If they're jumping on the short side of the train because they think, hey, things are going to be great and we're going to be expanding our balance sheets, that's one you would pay attention to. Mm-hmm. But if it's just people out there betting on Jay Powell, and you can look at the short speculative position, it's been building since June of 2019, which June of 2019 basically was when Powell uh, admitted they're flipping from rate hikes to rate cuts. And then it got bigger after March when this latest round of QEs went in, uh, were introduced in the U.S. and of course all across. And they got it even bigger still since late August when everything else changed to more deflationary. And what happened in late August? Late August was when Jay Powell got into Jackson Hole, or at least on some computer screen <laughs> at Jackson Hole, and said, we're going to do average inflation target. We're going to let inflation run hot. So the central bank is giving you, if you believe in this kind of thing, they're giving you cues to go short the treasury market. But if you go back to June 2019, are treasury prices much lower than they were a year and a half ago? No, they're much higher. So if you've been short the treasury market since June of 2019, as so many people obviously in the leverage money speculator class has, the other side of that, the institutions who are owning it and using it as collateral are saying thank you for thank you for the additional premium in addition to the treasury prices going through the roof. It was called the crime of the century. Bankers manipulating something called the London Interbank Offered Rate. Regulators stepped in and they provided, developed an alternative rate to be implemented by the end of next year. Jeff why are bankers currently telling regulators to go stuff themselves with this alternative rate? And what is it? What is it called? Because it's useless. <laughs> Leave it to a central bank bureaucracy to create a, a rate that's meant to replace a very key crucial part of the global financial and dollar system, 
with something that does that can't even do the job. Only a central banker could possibly be this monetarily incompetent. And what we're talking about is SOFR, which is the secured overnight financing rate, which is essentially meant to replace LIBOR as the standard to price all, almost everything. It, you know, we're talking about you know mortgages, for example, mortgage products. We're talking about um, cross currency basis swaps globally. Every, I mean, so much of the financial system derives pricing abilities from what's going on on the LIBOR curve. And yeah, central bankers have hated LIBOR for a long time. And so the article that we're discussing, it's called, There is a Hard Truth to This Soft Sofer Arrogance. And Sofer is spelled S-O-F-R. He posted it on November 4th at Alhambra Investments. But Jeff, you started out the article by referencing another article you wrote three years ago, and that one was posted on August 10th, 2017. And that's no random date in monetary history. It's an anniversary. What, what was that article about and how does it lead into our discussion of LIBOR, SOFR? Well, in August 9th, 2007, so it was the 10th, the 10th anniversary plus one day, um, to August 9th, 2007, essentially the euro dollar system broke and it has never recovered since. On August 10th, that became apparent if you were actually paying attention. And one way it became apparent was that the LIBOR rate skyrocketed while the federal funds rate plummeted. You had this major divergence in these two major or what's supposed to be major money market rates both of them unsecured, one domestic, one, one overseas in euro dollars. And, and what, if you go back and look at the FOMC discussions that took place on an emergency conference call, I believe on August 10th, they couldn't really make much heads or tail about what was going on. Why would these rates diverge? Why, what is this telling us? And what it tells you is that, again, LIBOR is a euro dollar rate, offshore, global money. Federal funds is a much narrower, limited domestic rate. And so... The Federal Reserve was saying, maybe that's not our problem. That's a London interbank. Yes, it's U.S. dollar, but London interbank offer, right? LIBOR. Maybe should the Bank of England? Maybe they should handle this because it's in England. It's, it's, yes, it's dollars, but it's not our problem, right? And so that's always been an underlying, uh, uh, you know, beneath uh, everything since August 9, 2007, is that the Federal Reserve has been reluctant to step up to the plate and recognize the global dollar system because they're not a global dollar central bank. They're a domestic bank regulator who only cares about the domestic part. And it's only been in specific instances where the Federal Reserve has been forced into doing things globally, like overseas dollar swaps that aren't so overseas. That's when they reluctantly have to admit to this this, this overseas monetary system in dollars that's represented by this one money rate they don't control. The second instance, perhaps, of when they had to admit to something happening in LIBOR was in 2012. Is that right? When then-chairman of the Federal Reserve, Bernanke, had to go up in front of Congress and uh, they discussed what was in the news then called the crime of the century, that some of the bankers were manipulating this LIBOR rate. And you tell the story, Jeff, that maybe the Fed saw this as a, it was conflicted, right? Because on the one hand, you don't want to talk about this offshore dollar market. You don't know if it even is under your purview. And on the other hand, maybe you can kind of get rid of it, come up with an alternative so you don't have to 
answer to that LIBOR thing there anymore? Well, remember before 2012, when they started to do something about LIBOR, there was 2011. 2011 was another Eurodollar crisis, which shouldn't have happened, right? Because the Fed printed a bunch of money. They created all these bank reserves through quantitative easing. And yet in, in July and August of 2011, here again were the same issues, including LIBOR. LIBOR started to rise. The TED spread started to rise, which signaled what? A rise in LIBOR, a rise in the TED spread signaled the dollar system was getting dry globally again. And central bankers in the summer of 2011 were saying, what the hell's going on? We created 1.6 trillion in US dollar bank reserves. Why isn't that enough? Why aren't these bank reserves that we call liquidity and that the financial media has called money printing, yet it's leading to this crisis where LIBOR, just like in 2007 and 2008, is saying something we don't want we don't want said to the rest of the world. And so by 2012, I think, and again, we don't know what the what the what was going on, but I'm I'm you know, my own reading between the lines, why all of a sudden LIBOR was a problem in 2012, I fully believe it has to do with that. That in 2011, central bankers said, enough is enough. This LIBOR thing is embarrassing the hell out of us. And anybody who understands what's going on, it's showing people that we don't know what the hell we're doing. So let's get rid of it. And the reason they got they decided they were going to get rid of them in 2012, what gave them the cover to do so, was that there was a bunch of there was an actual scandal in the LIBOR system. Banks had been cheating at the rates that they were they were they were giving to the, the British Bankers Association, trying to scalp a few pennies here and there on derivatives. And what was in order to give central bankers the cover to replace LIBOR, they called or they didn't call it specifically, but they let the financial media uniformly call this the crime of the century. This is some major, massive scandal when it really wasn't. It was really the this most modest thing. And the reason we know it was a modest thing was because up until 2012, not a single central banker in the world had said a damn thing about it. It had gone completely unrecognized up until all of a sudden 2012 after 2011, Ben Bernanke needs to get rid of this LIBOR thing once and for all because it's embarrassing him again. Well, I will bet whatever we need to bet here that uh, SOFR will also experience a scandal. Why? Because it's populated and controlled and operated by humans. Welcome to Earth. You don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because LIBOR was LIBOR Jeff a government mandated rate or was this an organic solution? to a complex system on how to price many things into the future over many different periods. And now the government is coming in and saying, we're going to scrap that organic ecosystem that grew up because there was a cancer in this one section. And instead, we're going to just substitute, plug it in like it's a Lego, a new rate that Jeff, you mentioned is just one rate. It doesn't have many tenors? How is that even feasible? It's not. And right, what they said was, okay, look, if we're going to talk about this nuts and bolts, LIBOR is essentially a made-up rate. And it is. What LIBOR asked banks, and now it's not under the British Bankers Association, it's now the Intercontinental Exchange or ICE, it asked banks to submit daily that what they would lend into the interbank US dollar, euro dollar market in US dollars if they were going to lend to a generic unsecured uh, uh, borrower. And so it's not what they actually, it's not based on actual transactions. It's banks telling you what they would do if they were going to do something. And so it sounds like, you know, it doesn't sound like a very good rate. I mean, that doesn't sound like a very good idea to, to base an entire financial system on something that gives banks all the powers to just make up numbers on the spot. 
And so in 2014, when authorities decided they were going to replace LIBOR with this software rate, what they said was to justify the switch is not only was there a scandal in LIBOR a couple of years ago, there's also this, you know, it's a made up rate. So we're going to use that. We're going to use a rate, this secured overnight financing rate that has repo trades in it. It's actual transactions, federal funds, all these other things. It's a, it's an amalgamation of all these legitimate transactions that take place. And therefore, as an overnight rate, it's much closer to what's actually going on in the market. Not what banks say they might do, but what actually takes place in the marketplace. And so that's was how that was how software was sold as. This is why we're replacing LIBOR because LIBOR is a made-up fairy tale fantasy rate, and software is a real legitimate rate. It's a little bit like the NFL draft. If anyone is uh, an American football fan here on the air, before the NFL draft takes place, you've got many people making estimations of who the best players are, and those lists are perfectly reasonable and legitimate. Even though in a few days, a few days later, there's an actual draft that determines the rank order of who gets picked first. That's because, you know, that's those teams are picking for their own needs. Whereas this other list is kind of a theoretical, um, you know, generic list of all the talent. So it's, it's kind of these two, two methods and getting rid of one in favor of the other purely seems like it would be well, it would be something the banks are not very interested in, and that's what the International Monetary Fund announced just a few days ago. Jeff, you brought up what their paper recently said, and what did the International Monetary Fund worry about? Well, basically, banks are not adopting software, and why would they? And software, again, as we said, was useless. And this is not something that's just been, you know, something recently. Officials in Britain, the United States, Europe have been talking about this for years, since they, they created the rate in 2014 and they launched software futures, I believe in 2018, they've been pushing the financial system more and more towards that individual rate. And more and more of the financial system is flipping the bird back saying, we're not going to do it. And the reason they're not going to do it is because again, as we said before, only a central banker would try to shoehorn this one single rate where into a, a situation it can't be used. It's not suitable as a replacement for LIBOR. And, we say that and what we really mean is that, look, LIBOR is not a single rate. It has a term structure, which means there's a one-week LIBOR, there's a one-month LIBOR, there's the three-month benchmark LIBOR, there's a six-month, there's 12. I mean, there's different rates about different periods. And the reason you want that is because the financial system is complex. Think about how mortgage products are put together, mortgage bonds are put together, for example. You don't just throw a bunch of mortgages together in a pool and package it up tomorrow you put together what's called in the TBA market, you put together a bunch of loans, you start packaging these things, and then you're borrowing funds in the repo market, maybe up to six or six or seven months down the, down the road, and you need to be able to price what things are going to be like six or seven months down the road, what funding is going to be like six or seven months down the road, and how can you do that with an overnight rate? You can't. Think about cross-currency basis swaps. A cross-currency basis swap is I'm going to swap dollars for yen, which means we're really going to swap the yen uh, the the Tibor rate, which is the Tokyo Interbank offered rate, for the Libor rate, which is a euro dollar rate, and then we're doing so at you know at three month Libor versus three month Tibor. How does software help me price a cross currency bait? You can't. You don't. You know, if I wanted even just a basic transaction like buy a euro dollar or sell forward U.S. dollars in the euro dollar market, the same time I buy a euro dollar forward, 
you know, to do some kind of, uh, of merchandise transaction. How does an overnight rate help me price what would be something like standardized three or six months down the road? It doesn't. It's unapplicable. It doesn't work in the financial system. It's simply an overnight rate with no term structure, and therefore it cannot it's not that it, it, we don't want it to. It cannot replace the entire, the entire LIBOR curve because the LIBOR has a curve. And you can't just organically shoehorn software into something that kind of a situation. So what that shows you is, number one, I believe uh, central bankers and monetary authorities around the world have uh, illegitimate, illegitimate uh, means in what they're thinking about why they need to replace LIBOR, number one. Number two, they don't really know what the hell they're doing. And it shows if you're trying to throw an overnight overnight rate into it to replace intending it to replace LIBOR, you don't really know how the system works. You can't. It, it's, it's you're demonstrating your own incompetence in that in that way. And what the monetary system, the banking system, has said in not adopting software is, look, it's not a choice here. We can't. This is a useless rate for us. You guys have no idea what you're trying to make us do. Yeah, the I the IMF. Uh spent a few words on this and you quoted them and you mentioned that regulators are quote worried about this. You, I went to the report that you linked and there was another line that I thought was very interesting. It sounded like it was saying uh, market participants rather have liquidity than pursue these regulatory requ or requests here quote in the floating rate in the floating rate note market, the spread between bonds with LIBOR to SOFR fallback provisions to those without has narrowed significantly, suggesting that investors are more focused on buying up scarce supply of forward rate notes rather than selecting bonds with secure fallback provisions. Yeah, and it's, 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 I think it's their way of saying, we want them to do this, they're telling us we can't, and we don't really know what to make of it. Is it a matter? Is it a matter of uh, gumption, elan, enthusiasm from the regulators? Why can't the regulators say you must or you're going to jail? Because it would wreck the system. But why? Why don't exactly. they say that? I think that's and I think that's what is really what's going on here is that they've overstepped their bounds and they're starting to realize they've overstepped their bounds, which is why they keep pushing back the deadline. By the way. Uh, the deadline, I believe, initially was supposed to be this year, the adoption of software. Now it's the end of next year. Well, and I think that's well, yeah, that's an excuse, but really, it's it's the lack of the financial system doing what they what they're saying. And look, it, the the banking system has basically gone with the rules. All these, are, you know, some of them draconian regulations that have been imposed since the first financial crisis, and yet here's one that they're basically saying we're not going to do it. It's not because they don't want to. It's because they can't. They really can't. And that's why I call this software arrogance because regulators are, are, are pushing for something that just doesn't work. And they're betraying their ignorance while doing so, which, is a, which is, to me is a positive byproduct of this whole thing is that, once again, these idiots are exposing that they're idiots and don't really understand how the financial system works because they're not central bankers. They are. They do something completely different, and, and and what they do doesn't require intimate knowledge of how the monetary system actually functions, and that should be the trigger for most people listening to this. Saying, how can it be that these people who claim to be overlords of the entire financial system and monetary system, you know, printing money with all their QEs, if they don't know a damn thing about it? That's it. That's it, Jeff. Very well put. It's a matter of money supply 
to help grow the economy, for us to all have good jobs that we can count on in the future. There's not enough right now. The people in charge of this money supply are nebulous. We can't go out to them because they're the private banking networks, but the people that say they're in charge keep dancing harder, waving their hands, but there's nothing that's being generated. And uh, that's what we see in the data and that you bring to us. Like we, say, hey, like we said before, Xi Jinping, you know, despise the guy, but listen to him. The banking system, maybe you don't like them. Maybe you hate Goldman Sachs and all the rest because of whatever reasons, but listen to them. They're telling you a story. Even if you don't like the story they're telling you as a regulator or as just an observer, all of these people are telling you things that you need to pay attention to. And they're, what they're telling you is, Lack of economic growth because of lack of money. And that's what we see across all these markets. We see in all the data. And we see in, you know, political, social consequences and all sorts of other things. You know, these, the first 15-year, five-year plan, all these, they're all related to the same thing. And, it's, and what they're really telling you at the very first, the first thing at the very beginning is stop listening to central bankers. Have a good weekend, Jeff. You too, Emil. Take care.